Welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hey, it's Anthony here, and welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. And as I often say, whether this is your first time or you're a returning listener, it's always great to have you here. Recently, I did an online presentation where I referenced a quote from a gentleman by the name of W. Edwards Deming, who said, show me the data. A person without data is just another person with an opinion. Now, I referenced it in the context of saying that in some areas of the hair and beauty sector, there is a lot of accurate data, but in other areas, there's a lot of opinion and perception. And while I can be as guilty of that as anyone, it's also important to separate fact from fiction. So my guest on today's podcast is Gordon Miller, who is someone who I would consider a good friend, but also someone who always has a good overview of what's happening in the hairdressing industry from a business and a data perspective. As well as his many previous roles in the industry, today Gordon is the Chief Engagement Officer of Hairbrained. You can check out Hairbrained online at hairbrained.me or search for the Hairbrained podcast on your favorite podcast app. We have listeners to this podcast in over 70 countries every week, and about 50% of them are American-based. However, I want to say that although our conversation today is based primarily around trends and data from the United States, most of it has a relevance, no matter where in the world you are based. So in today's podcast, we're going to discuss what the data says about the industry in a post-COVID world, what the trends are in evolving business models, and the changes happening to the professional retail model, and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Gordon. Anthony, one of my favorite podcast hosts, my fellow my fellow podcast host. <laughs> it's a pleasure, always. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I, I, I referred to you someone recently. I said, well, Gordon is like the sage of the hairdressing industry. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me sound so old. <laughs> and and I, I am, you know, but it makes me sound so freaking old. Well, it's it's uh, it's wisdom that that you know. Thank take you. it as a compliment. It, it's definitely wisdom. Um, now there there will be some people you know on my podcast that that uh, are not American, uh, and so they don't know who Gordon Miller is. So let mm-hmm. me, even though this is the third, at least the third time, possibly the fourth time, I need to check. I think I think it's the fourth. Right. Okay. Yes, it is. It's the fourth time uh, that you've been on the podcast. Uh, there'll be some people that maybe haven't heard of you before, uh, yeah. you know, from our Australian audience, UK audience. So I'm going to ask you to give us your sort of two minute backstory. So they get some idea of of where you're positioned in the market and what your, you know, depth of experience and expertise is in the industry, even though you're not actually a hairdresser. Yeah. So over to yeah. you. Yeah, well, first off, you know, uh, being a sage, <laughs> two minutes is not very much time. <laughs> but but, but um, I, I will say, I'm not a hairdresser, never been a salon owner. Uh, the fast version of that came into the industry uh, right out of college. I have a degree in investment finance, and I got a, a minor in economics. And and uh, as I always say, I, the only thing I knew about life was I didn't want to do either of those things. And um, fell by mistake, a uh, much longer story, into, into work as a Kind of an office grunt, uh, not knowing even what the company did that I was working for, um, and, uh, called Levans Incorporated in Denver, Colorado. They owned a bunch of salons. I've been in a salon twice in my entire life. We, we did, I didn't come from money, and um, so I, we never went to salons. And I didn't even know what a beauty school was. Um, but I was there for five years, and they treated me amazingly. Um, and quickly, I was like, "These are cool people." And so that was the beginning of my career. Um, Ten years later, um, I was hired by Pivot Point International, um, a global company um, in education in Chicago. I was there for 10 years. And the founder, uh, Leo Passage, became my mentor in in business and life and pretty much taught me everything I know. And and that was the beginning of my career nationally and and a little bit of international. 
Then I went on to be the head of what's called Milady Publishing, the biggest textbook publisher, perhaps in the world. I know they even have distribution in the UK for some of their products, but um, in, in the US, they have a 95% market share in schools. So it was a big publishing company. That was a, a brilliant opportunity. Um, went on to run the, the National Hairdressers Association in America, did that for 10 years. And that put me in the weeds with salons for the first time because I was more on the education side. So I really got fascinated having grown up, if you will, with education in schools and, and also, you know, beyond schools for, for both those companies. Being in the weeds of, and, and representing salons in the industry gave me a whole different perspective. And I loved every bit of it because my job was to represent salons to the government, um, to schools, to the larger industry and did that for 10 years. Then social media happened and I was taken by it <laughs> quite early. Um, in fact, a lot, a lot of brands that I was close to said, um, you're crazy. That Whatever this thing is, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> and um Thankfully, some of those same people go contact me regularly now and say, um, by the way, you were right. <laughs> and so I really jumped into that social media space, um, started a little company called Passion Squared with Nina Kofner, who I know has been a guest on the podcast and um, or is a coming guest. I can't remember coming, which. She's a coming and, guest. Uh, yeah, I think she'll be after guest, you. Uh, she'll be one episode uh, after you. Well, uh, everybody listen to Nina Kofner. She's one of the smartest people I know. She's a brilliant market, marketer. Um, and, and then from there, I went into to publishing. I, I was the publisher of American Salon Magazine, which is one of the biggest trade magazines in America. And um, and then um, joined Harebrained because um, I wanted to get into a more progressive media uh, environment um, and really, you know, kind of take my career back to where I was thinking it was going to go um, before I went to American Salon, which is digital all the way, social media all the way. And I've done that now for five years. And so, um, yeah, that's, a, that's a probably more than two minute story. No, you couldn't sandwich that in any tighter. And uh, it, it's, <laughs> it's fantastic because it gives people an understanding of the amount of experience you have in the industry across so many uh, different aspects of the industry. And, you know, over that amount of time, you know, 40 odd years, you yep. build up a lot of relationships, you build up yep. a lot of trust with people. And, and so that's why I call you the sage. In interestingly, the, the reason I did that is I heard someone refer to Warren Buffett, who's, you know, arguably the world's richest man, depends on what yeah. week you look at the numbers. And yeah. they they refer to him as the sage of Omaha. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> and, and he's older than you, Gordon. He's yes, older than both. He is. I was, you're reading my mind. I wanted to make that point as well. Yeah, so, yeah. And, 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 you know, I think the most interesting thing for myself about my career, you know, having been so long and, and very much being always, I think, it's a different version of, of down in the weeds with folks, which gives you such a clear understanding. I've never worked for a brand. And never working for a brand has put me in a really unique position as to how others, especially brands, look at me. And in a good way, because I, I think I try to present myself as Switzerland. I try to my, present myself as a person who, after all these years, cares so much about the people in the industry that I do my best to always speak what I really truly believe is the truth, even if it gets me in trouble. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. That's good. And the other thing that we both have in common is that we have the honor of being able to do what we're doing right now, which is yes. your, with your podcast and my podcast, I get to, yeah. and you get to ask people probing, insightful questions and to really make yeah. them think. And, uh, and that's an incredibly great space to be in for both of us yes. To, yes. To, as, as a resource to, to give you an understanding of, uh, you know, what, what's going on in the industry. So, yeah. uh, so, so that's why you're here and that's why, um, you. you know, our listeners will love uh, listening to you. Um, so we, we, I can't remember the date we last spoke. It was probably in, in the middle of COVID at some point, or depending on what you yeah. determined was the middle, beginning or end of COVID. Uh, <laughs> but 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 let's say that now we're, you know, fingers crossed, sort of well and truly, you know, coming out the other end of it or out the other yeah. end of it, depending where you are. Um, yeah. And so I want to start off with that. I don't want to talk about COVID all the time, but I just yeah. want to ask you, as an industry, where are we now? And specifically, what does the data say about where we are? Because one of the things I love and hate about the industry is there's a lot of drama, there's a lot of hysteria, there's a, there's yeah. a, lot, of, there's a lot of misinformation. Uh, yeah. But as you alluded to right at the beginning, you started off as an economist and you're a numbers guy and you love yeah. data. So yeah. uh, what does the as data you. say? 
Mm-hmm. Where are we as an industry in the US? Obviously, it's going to be more US centric. But yeah. uh, as I was saying before we started recording, a lot of the stuff that happens in the US has an an influence on the rest of the world. And if it doesn't have an influence, at least it's interesting for them to sort of see. Okay, so that's what's happening over here, over there, and that, this is what's yeah. driving it. So uh, over yeah. to you. The floor is yours. Well, you know, data is is complicated. And I think, you know, one of my favorite things to say these days, because I think it's never been a more complicated world, never been a more confusing world. And, you know, um, in the States, at least, we talk a lot about uh, the term fake news, um, which came out of politics. And it's it's been around for quite a while. And I, I tell, you know, folks, no matter what side of politics you are on in America, you have a sense that there's this thing called fake news. And I've kind of started to talk about what what I refer to as fake beauty news. It's just a different version of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Because in the in the era of social media, there's a lot of folks who realize that you can say pretty much anything you want to say. And if you say it with authority, people believe you. Mm-hmm. And if you're in the business of attracting attention, that sometimes incents people to say things that aren't quite right, um, that benefit them from a business perspective, but don't benefit the audience. And the audience can then be very confused about reality. So I think we're in the midst of this. And I'm seeing so many things talked about that just don't make any sense to me. You know, in our industry, um, like take the retail off your shelves as an extreme example, but it's being talked about a lot because it's the brands are bullying you and the long list of stuff. And I'm like, wait, 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 folks. Um, this is just uh, marketing. This is just buzz. Let's let's dig into to data and see the truth about it. Big picture. Um, we don't have great data, never have, to some of your point. Um, but the one place we can always look is to the brands, um, especially those that are publicly held, because they put out their information. And I've been watching stock reports and publicly presented versions of, of the economics of beauty for, for decades now. And coming out of COVID, it was very clear to me that, and, and then following up with brands to confirm some of this, brands have never done better. Um, it's amazing the the spike in revenues that we've seen the last 24 months um, that you can connect the dots back to the industry. And for me, connecting the dots is very often when there is no data, um, is having conversations as you do every day. You know, and I just came back from a Midwestern regional event and had, you know, a day and a half to basically chat to people in the hallways about how you doing, how you doing. And the consensus was. 80 plus percent, I would say, is my gut, you know, that 80-20 thing. Um, best years ever, really doing great, you know, exploding. Um, and then I dig in with, what about the challenges? What about your competition? You know, lots of closings, not lots of closings. So net-net, after talking for a couple of years about how things are going and with salons, with hairdressers, and then watching what brands and distributors are doing, I think we're in the best place we've ever been. To get there, you know, it's, it's kind of like as human beings, you know, you, you live a long life and you don't do everything perfect, and but you want to get to be better. Well, you got to do a little bit more work and you got to let go of some bad habits and, you know, shift things around a bit. And it feels like that's what's happening in the industry, that a lot of the, the dead wood has kind of fallen away, meaning some closures, some people leaving the industry. Um, different conversation, but I've long argued we've had too many salons and too many hairdressers in America. And we have too much of anything, prices are suppressed, you know, and people have too many options. And so, you know, it's easy to to move from salon A to salon B for, for whatever the reason might be. And when there's too much of anything, price sensitivity, you know, is becomes a real thing, you know, because it's like, well, wait, I can I why why are they increasing my price? Nobody else is, blah, blah, blah. And you know, on that point, back to data, um, We've never seen price increases in the U.S. like we've seen in this last 12 months, you know, and those are good things because people like you, people like myself, our, our mutual friend, Michael Cole, have been saying for a very long time, raise your prices every year. It's, a, it's, it's what businesses do, you know, around the world, um, especially businesses that want to stay in business because inflation is always with us. It's not, you know, people are very aware today of inflation. Inflation is always with us. So. The cost of money goes up about 3% on average every single year. If you don't raise your prices for two years, you've just lost six percentage points in the value of your money. So, you know, again, big, big picture. Um, I'm just hearing so much good from those who are in it, you know, um, doing it every day. And um, I think it's always important to understand. And I think it's more clear than ever that the world is. Um, um, a whole lot of niches of business that need to be considered in different ways. And our industry is a bunch of niches, you know? And when we think about salons, we have this really bad habit of talking about salons. 
like they're one group of things are all the same. And when I look at the US, you know, we have the value salons, you know, they're typically chains. They're a very different business model. Um, an example of that is I would always argue they live off what is called churn of people, meaning they, like a fast food place, they know their people aren't going to stay for a long time. It's their business model. They succeed in part because they don't have to pay a lot because that's the nature of their business. And people who don't get paid a lot as they grow as human beings want to go do something else. So in, in the US, McDonald's, they don't want someone making French fries there for two years. They will become an unhappy human being and cause trouble in the business. It will make other people unhappy. So you hire young kids who get some benefits, who get some value as to how to be a good employee, perhaps, and move on to something else in their life. You hope they grow. And, and so those salons, they don't mind losing people. In fact, they benefit. And so what they do is spend a lot of time in beauty schools getting people. At the other end of the market, the best salons in America, the multi-gazillion dollar salons with huge staffs and a lot of sophistication, they live at the luxury level. And then there's four or five other niches in between. And I think today more than ever, we have to talk about each of those niches in a different way because they've all been impacted differently. Um, those who are moving to suites, as an example, they come from a, more of one niche than another. So niches matter. And, and I think, again, big picture, we're doing great. But the niches, um, that's where things get a little more interesting, I think. Yeah. The only thing they've got in common is that they all do hair. And yet yep. we're trying to compare a salon suite or a booth renter to a high-end luxury salon yep. as if they're the same business. They're very, very different businesses. There was something their really interesting. Are different and, the, and the solutions are different to their problems. I mean, yes. I, I think that's that's the, the real point here is whatever challenges they have and whatever those solutions are, they're not the same by category. Yes, exactly. And that's why it's so hard to, as you just said, to, to make these generalizations. Um, you, you said something that straight away made me think of something I just heard the other week. Um, apparently, there was a report that was released, not officially, um, that Amazon executives had uh, had been working on. And essentially, this report, the conclusion of it, was that by 2025, they would have exhausted their demographic for the type of people that they want to work in their warehouses. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting. It's talking about exactly what you just said, the churn element. That, yep. that they know people are not going to work there forever because it's such a tough place to work and they're, they're you know yep. they're driven hard and so yep. it, it's really interesting that at least they are aware of that that even a company as big as that has yep. to go well hang on we are going to run out of our most valuable resource here if we don't start to change the way we treat people so i mean yep. th that's an extreme example um and it's probably if anyone's interested in, in finding out more about that i'm sure if you googled it you'd find something on it uh yep. if i can if i can remember where i heard it i'll i'll put a link into the the show yep. notes because it had very interesting implications for any demographic that we're talking about in terms of what people are prepared to uh, you know, to put up with and, and how people yeah. will work, that you have to look after people ultimately. And especially these days with, with Gen Z, yeah. it's like, hang on, <laughs> I don't yeah. do that stuff anymore. My, yeah. my yeah. you know, my boomer mum and dad might have put up with it, but I'm not going to put up with it. So uh, anyway, m moving right on then. So well, um, before you before we do, because I just think, you know, this is like such a big deal. And, and we we hear all the Gen Z stuff. And, and I, I, I love what you just shared with Amazon, because it reinforces to me that a conversation I've been having for years pre-COVID, which is, because in the U.S., at least, the, the big kind of political conversation within the industry has been the number one problem of the industry is labor, getting new labor. We have a massive labor shortage was always the story. I don't agree with that. I never have. Because I think if you look mathematically, and it connects to what you're saying, one of our problems in the U.S. is when you do the economic math, we have too many salons and too many hairdressers. Yeah. It's just easy to prove on a napkin. That all by itself will actually make staff retention worse. You know, because people don't make the living they thought they were going to make, they can't raise their. So, so we have we have more churn. We've always had a churn problem. Yeah. My conversations with salons of every kind have been that I have, through my career, been employed by companies that are 
larger and, and and bigger parts of the industry and sometimes have other other things going on in their business models. They you know, maybe are part of a conglomerate, as an example. Every place I've ever worked knows that they have churn and has a business plan to deal with churn. They have an HR department. They know over time they lose so many people a year. Um, in America, the average person stays on a job for five years. The beauty industry has this strange idea that we're supposed to stay on our job forever. That we're never yeah. supposed to leave. Whenever we leave, is 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 we're a bad person. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we can no, be there no. twenty years. We yeah, can yeah. be there two years. <laughs> and, and 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 the problem is related not to my business, and the solution is not about me figuring out what to do. It's a bigger societal and cultural issue that I'm dealing with mm. that seems unsolvable. And that's just so wrong because mm-hmm. every salon needs to be thinking like Amazon is thinking, you know, which is get, let's get ahead of this. Mm-hmm. Let's understand that our turnover. And I don't, I, I can't wait to read that report because I, I would believe that the reason they're having this is because during pandemic, they attracted a type of labor that was unlike any type of labor they ever attracted. Office workers became delivery people. They looked at the economic opportunity and perhaps didn't realize they weren't cut out to be a delivery guy. And they did it for two years and then they left, you know, and so their workforce shifted the the way people think about their lives in that workforce shifted. And now they've got a higher turnover problem. It makes a lot of sense. Mm. And, but yet we as an industry never talk about this problem or rarely talk about this problem in this way. Yeah. Uh, And I completely agree with you about the, the problem is that there are too many salons. And uh, competing for a limited pool of staff, and it's a self-perpetuating yep. problem. Uh, yep. Anyway, which we won't solve on this podcast. But um, no, you no. know, it, it, I, I think a lot of people would have been surprised to hear you say we're in a good place. The industry is in a good place, mm-hmm. and yep. and that where you base that from is that the manufacturers, by and large, have had a great couple of years. Now, I'm sure there's going to be outliers that didn't have a great couple of years, but by and large, the manufacturers did did really well. They had a great couple of years. So why is that relevant to salons? Because the manufacturers, for them to be doing well, they have to be selling products. So who are they selling it to? They're selling it to hairdressers, obviously, specifically color. So, um, Especially when you tie it, especially when you tie it to distribution. So that's like, that's like my way of, confirming because some people listening might say well but they're selling to other people too Mm. but distribution in in the u.s products flow from the brand to the distributor to the salon yeah so if distributors are doing well that means that the channel of salons is benefiting both the distributor and the manufacturer and you can connect the dots directly exactly so that's the data in terms of the industry overview manufacturers and you can't argue against that data that's that no. share prices and share prices yep. are cold hard data uh, yep. facts when we start talking about salons i know it is hard to get as much data and to get as much clarity around the data in fact it's damn near impossible uh, yep. but and you sort of alluded to this but you didn't mention the number at the beginning of covid it was like COVID happened and the next week yeah. people were saying 30% of salons are closed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Never to reopen. It's like, yeah. well, hang yeah. on, where, where did the 30% come from? Um, right. What does the data say now, now that we're uh, coming towards the end of 2022, what does the yeah. data say about what percentage of salons reopened after COVID, after some period of lockdown? The majority, um, I'm, I'm thinking back, you know, the, the the best study I saw was by the Professional Beauty Association, um, and it was done in the fall of 2021. So, you know, coming out of COVID, you know, yeah, so yeah. Um, I'm sure they're going to update the data this year. They typically do that in the fall, so they're probably working on it now. You know, at, at the point that they presented that data, um, it was majority by far had reopened. I don't, I honestly don't remember the number, but, but net net, you know, in terms of where we landed, it was a very similar number. It was off maybe just a few percentage points. Now, what was most interesting about that number um, is that, and this, this again comes from kind of speaking to people who've got data that you can't always see, because there is a lot of data in this industry. Most of us never made public. Um, interestingly, I'm about, I'm going to go back about 10 years or so. 
ago. One of the publishers did a study um, because they were they were planning to do something to recognize open new salons as opening, and it was part of the media space. They're like, we want to send a package of manufacturer samples to every new salon. So they did some work on how many salons open a year, how many salons close a year. You know, and, and it was fascinating because the numbers. I want to say it was about. Uh, I'm going to say twenty thousand salons or so. I could be wrong on that number, but it was in that range. Open every year and almost the same same number closed. Yeah, which makes sense because there's other studies that show how many salons there are in America, and it's never varied dramatically in the last ten years. So during COVID, it looks like actually fewer salons than ever closed. But simultaneously, almost no new salons opened. So net-net, interestingly, we were kind of the same, but we didn't have the new. So that means net-net, we were kind of in a little bit of a better place, which which is fascinating. Um, Some believe that that was because a lot of salons that were likely to close, because closing usually happens after a thought process. You know, most salons that kind of hang on for a bit. Um, some believe that a lot of salons hung on because of COVID money in the United States, that maybe that would make them stronger and they'd have a better ability to get through it. Some salons that I've talked to, you know, who were ready to close hung in there. Um, and on the other end, because they were able to manage through it, changed their mind, you know, and learned some new things, thought differently about how they ran their business, managed to survive it and come out the other end okay and are still around. So big closings didn't happen. Um, and um and simultaneously, also big shifts in business model didn't happen. Um, we had this big sense of everybody moved to suites. Um, talking to distributors, which is the best data in our industry, kind of on the ground because they visit everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, talking about three to five percent was the shift. Um, and you know, from salon to suite, from salon to from, suite, three to from 5%. salon to suite, three right. to five percent. Now we have eight hundred and some thousand hairdressers in America. You know, so three to five percent is it's still a good amount of people. You know, it's it's thirty thousand plus people, you know, who, who've moved. And you know, interestingly, um, every bit of quiet research that I see says that there's somewhere around one hundred to one hundred twenty thousand hairdressers in suites around now, around now, right. um, and movement um, to suites. And one of the bigger questions that we don't know about suites is, well, where whatever movement has happened historically, where does it come from? Is it coming from commission salons? Is it coming from chair rental salons? Because for many who are renting currently, moving to a suite is an upgrade in their business model. They're already independent. Mm-hmm. So they, they're in that model, and now they're going to be in that model in a better way. Mm-hmm. And then if we look at um, kind of mature markets of, in the U.S. in independence, those who don't work in commission salons, rental uh, of chairs, you know, or suites, we also see a movement um, that worries me of, of an increased number of beauty school graduates going straight into rental and yeah, straight into this crazy. And it's a different version of, you know, I've long watched students and having spent, you know, 25 years in the school side of our industry, um, in the publishing world, and in, in my early days working in schools, you know, there's, there always was a percentage of young people whose parents were ready to open their first salon the day after they got out of school. <laughs> Mom yeah. and dad were like, yeah, go open a salon. Mm-hmm. Those were usually not pleasant. There were usually pleasant endings to those stories, mm-hmm. but there was many of those stories. And I think... You know, many of us would argue that suites and chair rental are is the low barrier of entry to to feel self employed. Yeah, yeah. And young people like the idea of being self employed, and sometimes don't have the context to know they're not ready. Mm. Because oftentimes, when they come into the industry, they're told it's a great industry, it's artistic, you have all kinds of freedom, you can be your own boss, you can open your own business. They don't say not tomorrow. <laughs> they just say yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think there is definitely, I was talking to a California uh, person who I uh, think is on top of things out there and said, you know, that there are too many young people moving straight into suites and they believe the failure rate's high. I, we don't really know. Do, so is there any data on that as to no. what percentage? Well, the, the data is, is limited. Now, mm-hmm. I have been a guest presenter um, at one of the largest suite organizations twice now. And I did one of them during pandemic mm. and the audience was able to question me. So these were the franchisee owners. These are the people who own the buildings who do the rentals of one of the large suite companies. Um, and I was there to answer questions about challenges they were having. And they said the number one challenge that they have is turnover, people leaving, you know, their, their yeah. suites. 
Um, and that one person said it was as high as 38%. That was one person who was the franchisee talking about his business. No mm-hmm. one seemed to disagree with that number. So, um, you know, th- that's high. And, and, and yeah. I think it may be, it may be in that range. Um, but clearly, um, and, and when I asked the audience or asked perhaps it was the host, um, what were the, what do they have data on the reasons? Um, conversationally, they said as well, most people tell us because they do exit interviews, they don't want to do their own accounting. They don't want to do their own shopping for you know getting supplies back bar. They don't want to you know have to do all the things that business people who who are self-employed have to do <laughs> to be in business. So they said, what's what's your best advice? I said, well, my best advice to those who rent from you would be to consider what they want to do with their lives. And if they don't like any of that stuff, they should find a great commission salon to work. And I said, I know you don't want that answer. Yeah. And I said, you, I would say, can you find solutions to solve these problems for them? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what they are because I really do believe fundamentally you have people coming to rent from you who who aren't built to rent from you. And exactly. that's his own problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's his and, own and, problem. and those people shouldn't begrudge the fact that if they work in a commission-based salon as an employee-employer relationship, that the person that they're working for might be making, if they're lucky, somewhere between 5 and 10% profit out of them, of which they've still got to pay tax on and reinvest the percentage of back into the business all the time as well. So that's always the problem. There's this misguided idea that I work for someone yeah. who takes half my money and you know, um, and 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 I'm working for him or her to have this great life of luxury, but that just isn't the experience that, or it isn't the reality of most salon owners. It's not the reality of bigger life and employment. It mm. confuses the heck out of me about our industry. So I, you know, it's interesting, you know, being the sage, the old guy, <laughs> and working for forty for forty some years in the industry. You know, and you know, I've had six jobs in my career, six. Uh, working all for amazing companies. I, I, I feel really blessed. Um, every one of my bosses, every one of the heads of these companies was a multimillionaire. Every one of them. I begrudged them nothing as an employee. I never once heard anybody, and these were significant companies with lots of people working for them. I didn't hear anybody begrudge the owner like, oh, that person's making a lot of money. Therefore, this is not mm. a good place to work. Yeah. It's such a it's such a beauty thing. Like yeah. I'm like, how, the rest of the world, you know, that kid at McDonald's, I don't think sits around and goes, you know, that Mr. President at McDonald's, who I guarantee you is a multimillionaire, is is therefore a reason for me not to work there. Mm. I'm like, what? What? It's very specific to our industry, and it confuses the heck out of me. I think it's. It, a, it, I it think is. we need to do more to fix it. Yeah, it is specific to our industry, and it is yeah. it is amplified in America without a doubt. Um, yep, there, by unhappy a, people. Yeah, there's a there's a term that I notice American hairdressers will use, which is they'll say, "My boss." Essentially, this is what they say: "My boss takes yeah. half my money." My as a, money, as a, as opposed to saying, "Like my boss gives me half of what I generate." it's like my boss takes half my money it's it is a uniquely american expression the way people phrase that um and i I think that that is at at the nub of a lot of it they they sort of see that well i've generated two grand this week and you're taking a grand of that you know that's outrageous right well they don't realize is that you know i've got that grand and out of that i have to run a business and if i'm lucky there'll be five or ten percent of it in most cases left over yep. for what we call profit you know and uh anyway exactly you know, uh, let's move on from that you, you did when i asked you that question about what percentage of salons reopened uh you couldn't remember the percentage does 90 percent sound right to you because i was i was yes. told that yes. figure uh yeah. because yeah. it was you that told me that a little, a little i think it's a little <laughs> higher i think it's well, a little oh, higher. good okay yeah i think it yeah. might be i think it might be a couple points higher yeah but, yeah yeah. yeah. So, so again, it, it's like it's important to to sort of go. Listen, guys. Thirty percent of the industry didn't shut down. Ninety yeah. percent of salons reopened. That is the that is the data. That that's not just someone you know making it up on a yeah. on a wing and a prayer. And so, the the shift from salon to suite was three to five percent, which is a significant number of people. But it's not like an mm-hmm. avalanche of stuff. 
you know, at right. the same time. So, and, 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 and you have to start with the pre-COVID number. We were we were at thirty-five plus percent of the industry in America being independent before COVID. Yeah, before COVID. Yeah, and 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 we're at approximately the extreme number that I hear from some who may or may not be properly informed today is about forty-two percent. Um, from hearing other folks, I believe it's closer to 40. But but regardless, that is yeah. not a huge shift. Yeah. We were already there. And that's, we've been at th- th- that's not 40% of people in suites. That's 40% of people that are independent. So they might be booth renters yes. or in suites, essentially, yeah. those two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they are not com- they are they have moved from commission to something else. Yeah. Okay. And and of course. In amongst that percentage of people, when we talk about the churn from suites, there's yeah. another element, which isn't, again, it's not known. What percentage of people start off in a suite and they go, I've got the hang of this. I'm made for this. I want to leave the suite and open a business on Main Street. Because for some people, the suite is an incubator into opening yes. a fully-fledged commission-based salon. And, and that's another yes. interesting dynamic that will come out of this, isn't it? And, well, and it was here pre-COVID, you know, it fascinates me. And this, I think, is one of the more interesting, you know, kind of business shift dynamics since COVID. But it began pre. I really, truly believe that the interest in suites, suites have been around, you know, you and I have a mutual friend and podcast guest, Eric Taylor. Eric, Eric Taylor runs Salon Republic, kind of iconic in the suite industry. He founded it 24 years ago. Mm. Suites are not new. Yeah. But... Um, because they've been re- because they were always regionalized in certain parts of the country, they weren't known to many. We we did not have them in the Midwest, as an example, in a sure. big way. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know the awareness of them. So what what happened? How did they become so aware? I would argue that the rise of influencers, well, separate whole thing, but the rise of influencers in social media was the introduction to most of a suite because the guy tangs of the yeah, world yeah. And, and that ill all those they all worked in suites many yeah. of them at salon republic by the way in california so just coincidentally people became aware of this cool little environment what's that you know and but many of the early influencers did all of their work from suites introduced people to suites 80 percent of the ones i know best within two three years opened their own salons mm. and now that was pre-covid and now as we've seen suites grow and grow and grow, exactly what you said seems to be happening. It's becoming an incubator. And more proof points around that is the number of suite owners who are talking today about having moving from a single chair to a double to a quad mm. to renting the suite next door yeah. and now have six people yeah. working with them or for them mm. as employees often in a suite, Yeah, which is... It's just a sign of what's to come. Exactly, exactly. It's it's very interesting. You know, another thing that intrigues me is, you know, if we were to take a window of time and say the last 10 years, there's been this phenomenal boom in the barbershop and there's oh, been yeah. this phenomenal boom in the blow-dry bar. Like yeah. it just exploded, that blow-dry bar thing, and the barbershop yeah. exploded. And now yeah. trying to get any data Forget about it. There's, there's yeah. like, and and, yeah. and now you literally, you know, the barbershop business is interesting because when we started off this, we were talking about the importance of data as opposed to just having an opinion. Yeah. Trying to get any data out of the barbering side of this industry is yeah. just like forget about it. It's it's yeah. like it's, it's operates at a at a level which sort of just sits out of the realm of getting information. <laughs> do you know yes. what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what, what do you Many see reasons. happening with that, with both barbershops and blow-dry bars? Very different businesses, but, you know, they Definitely. boomed in popularity and now they've sort of been like, I won't say they've been dropped, but what, what's happening with both of those models? So blow-dry bar first, and again, you know, observational because the data just isn't there i mean you 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 know in, in we have dry bar in america which is the largest corporation doing yeah. blow dry but it's been emulated by many yeah. you know um and and arguably you know even pre-pandemic um it was still spiking but it was never it was it was our awareness of it was as much a function of marketing and buzz and anything you know so when you looked at the numbers it was difficult outside of metropolitan areas to see these independent 
yeah. um, businesses that were called dry bars, you know, so, you know, very, you know, metro area related. Um, yes, a lot of growth, a lot of salon, traditional salons saying, hey, the best way to compete is to offer that service in our salons, especially yeah. bigger salons. So mm. We saw that. We continue to see that. And observationally, it feels to me like it's flattened, you know, just across the industry mm. as more salons have added those kind of services to their menus. A lot of a lot of better salons use their apprentices, you know, and their young people coming in to do those services. So, mm-hmm. because a lot of times in those salons, finishing is what they focus on for the apprentice. So, the hair cutter who's making a lot of money has an assistant who can really finish that hair and get those skills that they didn't have when they came out of school. But it feels very much like it's flattened out, and I don't know much beyond that. Um, I could be I could be wrong. I could be right. Um, but I don't hear the same level of buzz that I heard before, and I don't hear the better salons concerned about it anymore because they've already emulated it and they're they're there. You know. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I, what I have heard from industry people recently, and this is just totally anecdotal, um, but from smart people who pay attention to things, they believe the quality of those services was going down because of labor issues. That turnover was higher in those things, possibly just almost by definition because of the business model, um, and that getting replacement help um, during these times was not easy, and the training programs um, didn't work as good. So, so perhaps that model has some of the air taken out of it. I'm, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Barbers is much more fascinating to me, so because so much of barb it was all driven by social media. You know, if I think back 15 years or so ago, the conversation that I was having with the industry in my role as executive director of the Hairdresser Association was that the barber industry in America was a dinosaur and was going away. Mm. Um, and this was in the mainstream markets. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and when you go into the, you know, into the black community, into the Latino community, into the Asian community, you know, the barber shop is a, is a, it is a, just a pillar in the community. It's it's not going away. But as an industry, we're somewhat segregated from that. So we don't always have that. And then most interestingly is the barber industry in America is almost all rental. You know, so once you get past the chain barbers, you know, the Floyds and you know some of those others who pay commission or salary, the majority by far of barber shops, you know, probably 80% are rental. Yeah. And as rental, we have a lot less data. They have no national organization that that they can work with or oversees them or collects information. So again, a lot of just a lot of bad data in my neighborhood in Chicago. And I live in you know a, a kind of a somewhat upscale neighborhood in the city of Chicago. I can walk past five barber shops in my neighborhood. Interestingly, during the pandemic, when things were shut down in Chicago, um, three of them all their windows were papered over. <laughs> and so you couldn't see in. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> I wonder why as well. But, you know, there was always cars parked on the side of the building, you know. So, yeah, so, yeah. But I think they went in through the back door. Yeah. You know. So, so again, barbers kind of were underground. Now, what also fascinates me as social media exploded the barber world, what we did see from an evolution perspective, I think, is not so much. Um, so many of the openings were kind of um, more mainstream. You know, we saw a lot of barbershops that were less less um, focused on people of color. And all of a sudden in my neighborhood were these hip barbershops, hip, cool barbershops for, mm. for hipster Caucasian people. I mean, I'd say it that way, but that's reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and that exploded. And I feel like that's now on the down because when I look around Chicago at, at all of these barbers and, you know, traveling the city and looking at them, I see those shops in particular struggling with the comeback from COVID more than I see the long-term barbershops that have been here um, that just seem to just bounce right back or or never really slowed down. Um, I also think on social media um, that it's not quite what it was. And I also think maybe the world's figured out what it was, which was, again, more arty and less perhaps representative of the reality of what consumers are looking at. So I think the barber thing benefited hugely from social, but I think we're past that now. And I, I don't see a lot of run room left to grow that segment in the industry. Yeah, that'd be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah. What, what do yeah. you see as the future business models? I mean, you know, there's been this movement from a more commission-based business model as a yeah. generalization um, and a movement from that to there becoming more independence. Where yeah. do you see, and, and the whole sweet thing, uh, any yeah. any any predictions about what will happen in the future? Because obviously, what's happening now 
is commission salon owners have woken up to the fact that, hey, we need to reinvent here because if we don't reinvent and and rethink our whole business model and how we're going to uh, you know, work with today's workforce, then we are not going to survive. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of changes going on in that area. But but what what do you see the future looks like? Do you see any new business model coming out of all this? Well, I, I mean, first and foremost, I think so much of the feeling the industry has, you know, we're an emotional industry, right? So, mm. so much of what happens in this industry, as you watch it occur, sometimes you shake, I scratch my head and go, what the, why the hell is this happening? Um, and often it goes back to this kind of emotion that kind of wave comes in waves across the entire industry based again on the information flowing around and through social media. And again, I go back to what I believe is a lot of this fake news stuff. Um, and even generationally, you know, it's a very big conversation about boundaries. Um, the industry in America, um, pre-COVID and post-COVID, is predominantly part-time. You know, we've been in an industry of mostly three to four day a week people for for probably, you know, 10, 20 years. Um, because we're predominantly a, an industry of women. And better salons have always recognized that they bring in great talent, that these talent, talented people often will start a family and have reasons to kind of rethink a little bit their, their schedules. And again, some of the best, most renowned salons in America have been giving people part-time schedules forever, have been adjusting for rational reasons. It's, it's not that, hey, I, I just want to work part-time. You know, it's like, well, why? I, I don't, don't want to work as much. I don't hear those stories very often, but I yeah. hear people who are making adjustments to their lives and continue to have great careers. I, I know hairdressers have been doing hair for 30 years and have raised multiple children and never stopped doing hair yeah. and have great lives and make big incomes. Mm. And so, you know, when I think about that, I'm like, wait, successful salons have almost always had an attitude towards people um, that isn't that different than the attitudes that young people are looking for today. So yeah. they want it, but it's always been here. Now, there are lots of salons that are not very well run. They're not very well managed. I, I've been saying for at least a decade, when people talk about rental and in states, it was lionized and thought to be a terrible thing for years. People are like, oh, the rental thing, they're all tax evaders. I'm like, yeah, that's our industry. It's not just, it's just not booth renters, but whatever. Um, and, and so I'm like, there's this confusion, again, about just the realities of our business because young and I, I think it's true of any, any group of young people we come in and we kind of think about what we want our lives to be and, and maybe we don't look past the edge of of the life we're living to understand that maybe it's already being done and we just haven't taken the time to look for it mm -hmm. and so i think yes there's shifts i think salons are overreacting to be perfectly honest um in some ways to what we perceive as shifts in business models but that's that kind of fundamentally connected to the, a bigger idea which is Small businesses in beauty, in restaurants, in retail, typically are owned by people who were never meant to be business people or leaders. And so it's one thing to be a great hairdresser who wants to open a salon, but do you have the skill to manage and lead people? Mm -hmm. Well, the barrier to entry to doing it is small. And so there's a really good chance that you're not. And so that, going back to our start of our conversation about niches, I think that everything you asked it is, should be applied differently by niche. Um, value price salons, as an example. They've almost always had you know 80% part-time workforce. That's part of their business model. McDonald's doesn't want full-time French fry guys. Mm. In part, again, going back to that, you know, they expect churn. Um, labor has a cost. Um, when you get to full-time, you cost more than part-time, not because of the number of hours you work, but because of the money you get every hour has a, has a premium on it because the law requires to provide certain benefits potentially. So part-time is, is to certain business models um, is more economically feasible. Yeah. And, but at the same time, those are sophisticated companies that know how to, to, know how to train managers to be leaders within the context of that environment. Mm. And so they have stuff that makes them function better in that environment. Um, the top end of our industry has similar. Those are the industry leaders that I know go to Intercoffiore and go to all the industry events and talk about business and do understand that. And if they don't, they hire consultants to help them. And, but it's the vast middle, 
that is challenged, that people are too busy doing hair and owning a business yeah. to dig into all the things that they need to learn and adapt themselves to, to be good at what they need to be good at to maintain their businesses. Mm-hmm. And so to me, no matter what changes come through the world, and we, you and I've lived through several generations of new people coming into the industry, and every generation has this challenge, but the Van Michaels of the world, who've been doing what they do for a very long time, in all the conversations over the years I've had with them, it's never been about, oh, the new generation coming in, you know, like, because every new generation does bring its stuff, you know, and, and we older folks bring our stuff to the party. But you kind of have to put that off on the side and just focus on what does it take to run a business well? And yes, how do you lead people based on who they are? And that might include generations. But somehow, these people with the training programs, with the resources at the high end of the market and the low end of the market, they win. And so I have to look at them and go, the rest of the stuff we're talking about, perhaps we're not thinking about it in the right way. And, and, and I think that's the foundation of a lot of what has been wrong for years and will probably continue to be wrong. Because again, we go back to our emotions of, oh, these people are a certain way or these people are a different way or the people who are my boss are a certain you know, it, it all boils down to emotions, which the more sophisticated of the market, parts of the market understand and kind of push past. And that's a long-winded answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's okay. some... no that, that was great. It was a great answer. I, I, I had so many times where I wanted to interrupt you, but, <laughs> but I held myself back. Um, you know, yeah, generationally, uh, Gen Z, uh, which is rapidly becoming a big chunk and will very quickly become the majority of our workforce. Uh, So so you've got that component, but then you also have the COVID component. And then you also just have, it's not Gen Z, it's people today. And people today, uh, whether it's because of COVID or, or, or an influence from a younger generation, whatever it is, People today are reassessing. Well, what do I want yes. out of life? How do I really yes. want to work? And yep. you know, if there was a word that was you know to be on the on the on the headstone of Gen Z, it, it would be flexibility. That they this is a generation that have demanded flexibility, and good on them. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Um, that people now, but, in terms of our workforce, want more flexibility. But when I mm-hmm. saw the data that in the US, and I think this came from the PBA, Professional Beauty Association, mm-hmm. uh, 60%, correct me if I got this wrong, 60 mm-hmm. work less than 30 hours a week. Right, 60, like, 60, 61%. 61%. But, but that's not a huge shift. That's not that's not a huge shift. Pre, yeah, Pre-COVID, it wasn't said. much different. Okay, yeah. so, I, so I was amazed that you were saying that that's existed anyway. Yeah. All this time, it's not new, but yeah. I'm, I'm surprised. Yeah. I, I have no idea what it is in the Australian market or Canadian yeah. or UK or Europe or whatever. Yep. But uh, but that's, I mean, the implication for that is, is that this is essentially a part-time industry. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm and not sure how I feel about been. that. But yeah. Long I, has I, been. yeah. yeah I, I don't feel so good. At, I think it helps explain why we have so much turnover, yeah. you know, number one. See, when, when we say to young people, you know, um, and I'll focus on them for a moment because that number, of course, is across the entire industry. And it's not just young people by any stretch. And in fact, so many of the more experienced, successful hairdressers I know who are making really good money work three or four days a week because they've managed to do things that we heard during COVID that people should think about doing, which is, you know, be more efficient in the days that you work, make more money in those days so you can work less because maybe you have other things. I think, again, generation is a little different. Some of those people who are doing that are have older children and, are, and have a different kind of focus in their lives. And it's not so much, I don't like to work, you know, because they're actually killing themselves perhaps in those three days to get what they're getting. You know, so, so it, there is some, you know, difference generationally. And again, yeah, COVID kind of shifted things up, you know, in a, in a very big way. But to your point, you know, yes, we're becoming a part-time industry. Young people think, have this feeling like, I can have it all, but work less. Mm. And that's never been the case. And there isn't anything that happened during COVID, I would say, that changed the dynamic of what it takes to be successful in such a way that we all can just work less and get the same. Yeah. yeah. You know, so the real, the real question is, are you willing to settle for less in life mm. to have the schedule you want? Yeah, yeah. Because especially in our industry, like what I've observed over time, you know, of successful people is, 
First of all, you come out of school with a lot of limitations. That's the nature of coming out of school, any school, any career. You don't know it all. You don't know how to do it all. You don't have the life experience. You don't have the career experience. Um, and you are from a certain generation, and perhaps you do certain think a certain way. As an older person, and again, our friend Michael Cole, when I asked him about this question about generations, I said, what, what do you think about this, this new generation and how they feel and what we're reading? He said, he said, well, when I was 20, said it was all about peace, love, and 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 flower power. You know, he's like, that's that yeah, was yeah. my that was me. He says, and then 20 years later, I was all about how much money can I make and, yeah. and, and materialism. And yeah, I want the economy or the environment to be nice, you know, but I'm not really focused on that right now. I want my I want my gas guzzling car, period, end of the story. He, we evolve, yeah. you know, and, and how people think at 20 is different than 30 and 40 and yes. 50. So so yeah. that's gonna shift. But I think um I think we do the younger generation a disservice mm-hmm. by simply reacting to what we're hearing. I think we need to take the time to not disagree, but to inform, yeah. you know, because I believe. That well, I know factually in the U.S. over time that people who go independent last less in the industry. The turnover rate is much, much higher. California is the easy model to look at. It's got the highest percentage of all hairdressers who are in rental. It's over 80%. Um, there are more hairdressers per capita with licenses in California than any other state in America. Why is that? Turn. We need more hairdressers. They leave. They leave more quickly mm-hmm. because they don't have mentors. They don't have bosses. They don't have a support system. They don't have coworkers who are coworkers because they don't have any coworkers, even if they're standing next to somebody. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of flaws in the independent model that have not really been addressed by the industry. And the worst part about it is we don't have the data, clear data, and we're not talking about it. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Well, look. We we I could talk to you all day. We've only got about ten minutes left, and I can't talk. I can't not talk about retail um, in this yeah. conversation. That's a really important yeah. thing to touch on here yeah. in terms of change. Is yeah. there any data? I'm sure there is about the trends yeah. in salon retail and the impact that online and affiliate programs are having. What what yeah. what are you seeing there? What I'm hearing, talking to those who have the data, because you don't, you're not going to find much that's very public. Even when you dig into those big stock reports, you don't see it doesn't get as granular as you would yeah. like to. Yeah. Again, because we've had these long careers and relationships, we do get to hear things from people who have data that's maybe not shared publicly. So the affiliate thing was a blip, from what I can tell. Um, it doesn't sound like it's you know significantly changed anything. Um, you know, feels in the, you know, small percentage points, you know, as one said to me, you know, maybe three to 5%. Um, so we, and, and that seems to have been a blip that has kind of settled down into a smaller number. Um, then we have another phenomenon in the States, which is that um, to help solve e-commerce specifically, and, and this idea that salons aren't retailing, there's also a, a way through distributors now that salons can sign up for a program where, um, the distributor sets up a retail website for them. And like Amazon fulfills everything, the orders yeah. appear to go through the salon, mm-hmm. but actually the back end is handled by the distributor, local or national, who who not only um, uh, manages all the inventory um, as part of their larger business, it's like Amazon, again, they, they've got all kinds of products and they ship out to the consumers what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, that also, I'm told, is at about 3% um, in terms of market share for these distributors. So very, very small. Um, interestingly, for salons to participate, they have to give all their client information to the distributor. Mm-hmm. My thing about that is that whatever, whatever business model you're involved in, when you hand over all your customers to a third party who's in the business of doing something similar to what you do, is there a chance that when it gets too successful... And you're not doing anything other than handing people lists mm-hmm. that they just cut you out. Yeah. And because it doesn't make economic sense to do otherwise. And I'm not predicting and, and certainly um, mm-hmm. love all parts of our industry. And I'm not saying anything nefarious is going to happen, but there's kind of a natural evolution of that that makes no sense to me. Um, having said that, uh, when you look at consumer behavior, you know, let's talk about the people who buy things. Um, it's fascinating. Um, a study I saw recently from Forrester, who's one of the best data collectors on what happens online, you know, is they said that when it comes to behavior that has changed post-COVID as how we shop for things more generally, um, A, Gen Z 
had the highest percentage point of people who couldn't wait to go back into a store. Yeah. That they were the generation in the highest numbers that saw shopping as a social activity, number one, whether they were with their friends or family or by themselves with people. They want to be with people, you know, and even though this is a digitally native group, it almost was counterintuitive, you know, that this young group of people who were so savvy um, with buying things online and, and certainly represent a large number of the Amazon customers, they couldn't wait to go back and buy. And so that's fascinating. The, the percentage that has the least um, amount of interest in going back to retailing was Gen X. And they were, you know, they were happy to shop online in larger numbers. It was only about 47% who said that they, you know, preferred online. Yeah. Old, older folks fell back more into their habits of going back into stores. Mm. And, and, and in doing so, perhaps made some shifts in how they think about shopping. You know, perhaps their commodities were still bought online, but their general shopping, they still like the experience. Um, and then the biggest, perhaps the biggest shift in online in terms of behavior, is people who have money. People at the highest income levels have stuck at the highest percentage of any group um, with buying online because they value their time so much. Yeah. You know, they want to have, they came out of COVID wanting, to, couldn't wait to get on a plane for Paris if they lived in Chicago. You know, it was about getting back to experiencing life in a, in a, in a way that a person with resources have and doing more of it than they did in the past. Yeah. And so they value their time differently. Having said all of that, when you look at re uh, online buying, um, what happened with COVID, we saw it go from about 18% of all retail. It went up to about 23%. And now it's dropped down to about 20, 19 to 20%. So we saw a huge bump. We saw it go back down again, all retail, everything, everything. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a couple percentage points ahead, which was actually the natural trajectory. So we kind of saw this spike that wasn't supposed to happen. And it's just settled back to where it was. And yes, it will continue to grow. And who knows where it'll be in 10 years. Um, but, you know, it's a shift. Last little point on that, I read a study with Amazon. Amazon, what Amazon saw in shampoo sales specifically coming out of COVID was a shift from luxury to value. They saw a two percentage point shift from their purchases of high price shampoo back to a lower price shampoo, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah. I don't know what I it means, but it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I would have thought from what I hear that it yeah. would have been in the opposite direction. Me too. So, Me too. Yeah. Okay. But I think and, we hear from people again, who, who don't look at the time of context, you know, that yeah. Amazon has to really see everything. Yeah. Uh, last thing then is just to talk about channels to market for professional yeah. product. Yep. Do you see any new channels for professional hairdressing product entering the market that that salons can take advantage of and take opportunities there? Well, everything we just talked about kind kind of is a, is a version of channels. You know, meaning you know Amazon. You know, is yeah. a channel. Um, Amazon was a channel, and, and Amazon was a channel filled with diversion. That was kind of the introduction of the Amazon channel to the industry. Yeah. Then we saw brands hop onto the model and do it in a way that was to benefit salons for the most part. And, and a lot of that was to make deals with Amazon that made them get rid of the diverters. You know, so that tightened up the channel. Um, um, I, you know, I, you know, there was the, the curbside pickup and all that. You know, I. My honest opinion about channels more generally is that, you know, we have seen over the last, you know, 30, 40 years, the number of channels grow incrementally um, from a single channel to about 10 channels. And each of those channels has added another challenge for salons and retail, more competition mm -hmm. for product being sold by salon, uh, professional product being sold across different channels, you yeah. know, whether it's an Ulta as a channel, you know, Ulta, is, Ulta might have a salon, but it's a different kind of channel. Sephora is a channel. Amazon's a channel. Mm. Um, a salon selling online is a channel. And yeah. to me, that's one of the obvious ones. And there's other versions of that. But I, I do believe that, you know, um, every bit of data shows that 80% of all salon retail, actual 
retail that is in any way being sold through the salon, online, offline, whatever, um, that 80% of all of it is being done by 20% of salons. It's that old 80-20 rule that yeah. holds true. Yeah. And that's where the future seems to lie. And the 80% um, are continue to be at risk. They always have been at risk. The 80% are one of the reasons that we keep seeing new channels pop up because brands, especially if they're publicly held, have economic pressure to sell more stuff. And yeah. if salons aren't doing it, they're gonna they're gonna put it somewhere else. So is, I, I I'm probably missing something, but I mm-hmm. but but yeah, I, I think the pressure on publicly held companies to sell more is is not gonna go down. Mm-hmm. Um and so um, they'll give more and more support to salons do it well, and the rest are, are going to be looked at as not being a part of the solution. And I, I think we potentially will see either more channels or more support of the channels that are outside of salons. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Okay. Well, look, unfortunately, we have to wrap up. That was that was great. That was, you know, <laughs> always. <laughs> I always enjoy talking well, to you. Well, I have to... Th- Sorry, carry on. I, ha- I well, I have to say to your audience that you're going to be a guest on my podcast, on the Hair Brain Conversations <laughs> podcast, to wrap up the end of the year because we do enjoy speaking with each other so much, and we often don't record our conversations. Boy, those are, so those would be some good ones. Um, but we are yeah. formally, um, thanks to our friends at Paul Mitchell, going to be doing a, a, a year end wrap up, and and you'll be doing most of the talking, and I can't wait. Well, I will look forward to it. So uh, if you're listening to this podcast with Gordon and have enjoyed it as much as I have, then do me a favor, take a screenshot on your phone and share it to your Instagram stories. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast app. So to wrap up, Gordon, thank you so much for being on this week's episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. My pleasure. My favorite place to be other than on my own podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thanks again. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.